Welcome to Uncover. I'm Joyce. Uncover is dedicated to presenting the narratives, perspectives, and opinions of those who are affected by the COVID-19 outbreak in and beyond China. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Medium by searching Uncover.2020. We're also on WeChat with the name Uncover 一中人 So this issue is the recording of an online panel discussion that took place last month. As we all know, in the last few months, it has been widely documented and reported that there has been a surge of prejudice, discrimination, and violence against Chinese people and people of Asian descent or appearance all around the world. The coronavirus is new, but of course, xenophobia and anti-Chinese or anti-Asian racism is not. So, on April 26th, the Office of Diversity Initiatives at Shanghai New York University or NYU Shanghai organized a discussion titled "Xenophobia in the Time of Coronavirus: Culture, Race, and Stigma." The panelists are Joanna Whaley Cohen, provost of NYU Shanghai and professor of history; Lin Yao, PhD candidate at Yale Law School and a public intellectual and activist; as well as Chiu Yu, lecturer in social anthropology at Mingzhu University of China. I was the moderator of the event, and together we discussed. The social, political, and historical context in which Chinese people and Asian people at large have been stigmatized、um, and discriminated against in the time of COVID-19. Looking at both the history and the current phenomenon, we talked about the narratives that link the imagining of a disease. With the imagining of the other, we also、uh, talked about the recent incidents of anti-black、uh, xenophobia and racism against African nationals in China, especially the historical and psychological roots of racial prejudice. So now let's listen to the conversation. So today, together with us, are three amazing panelists, Joanna, Yao, and Yu. Thank you so much for joining this panel, and welcome. Okay, now I'd like to invite our panelists to introduce themselves.、Uh, so, your name, where you are currently at, and、um, very briefly your background, as in relation to the topic we're discussing today. Let's start with Joanna. Hello, everybody. I am Joanna Whaley Cohen. I'm the provost of NYU Shanghai, and I've taught the history of China at NYU in New York from 1992 to 2012, and in Shanghai from 2013 until now. And I have particularly focused on interactions between China and the West, especially Europe, and to a lesser extent North America. And I've also more recently. Been interested in the culinary history of China, which I think is somewhat relevant to our current topic. Unexpectedly. Thank you. Let's go to Yu or Yao. Hi everyone. I'm currently at Yale Law School. I'm a JD candidate here. 
before law school, I did the PhD in political science at Columbia University, where I focused on political theory, including theory of uh, identity, exclusion, and racism. And now in law school, I focus on American legal history, including the history of Asian Americans, especially the fight against racism in the United States. Uh, my name is Chou Yu. I was trained in social anthropology at the University of Cambridge. Uh, in the past years, I've been working on uh, China-Africa relations, particularly related to uh, Nigerian-Chinese interracial intimacy and marriage. So in the past, I've been doing research in Guangzhou, the metropolitan city in the southern China, as well as in Lagos, Nigeria. Currently, I'm also working on a new project in Dar es Salaam in Tanzania. So in the past uh, years, my most research interest will be focusing on the race, gender, and the migration. Thank you so much for that round of self-introduction. I want to start our discussion today by maybe sharing a little bit of um, the background information. You know, it has been documented, reported, and backed up by research um, that in the past few months, there has been increased prejudice, discrimination, and violence against Chinese people and people of Asian descent um, or appearance. Here, we see the increase of anti-Chinese slurs on 4chan, a infamous website known for um, its misogyny and hate speech against minorities, among many other things. But of course, this trend is not unique to 4chan, right? Across different online platforms and communities, there was this surge of anti-Asian um, slurs near the peak of the outbreak in Wuhan, as you can see here, and again last month around the time when Donald Trump used the term Chinese virus. Other than racist memes and rhetorics online, there were also many incidents of uh, physical violence and assaults on Chinese people and people of Asian descent or appearance. We also saw problematic headlines on some major media outlets, as you can see here. So let me start by asking you, Joanna Yao and Yu, when did you first take note of COVID-19-related uh, racism and xenophobia at this time? And wherever you were back then, what were your feelings and thoughts? Maybe I can just say a few words. I was in New York in January, February, and March. And I became aware through two means. One was a post from Paris, which said, I am not a virus about a, which went in the old fashioned sense viral. And it was part of a collection of anti-Asian episodes being recorded by a professor at the University of Connecticut. And he's continued to do that. So I've sort of followed that intermittently ever since. And I was not surprised to hear about it because epidemics have always been associated with hostility towards people perceived to be outsiders, whether it was Jews in the Black Plague, the Black Death in the 14th century, or gay people during the AIDS epidemic in the 80s, or Chinese people during SARS, African-Americans during Ebola. It's a very familiar thing, but it, it happened very fast, I think, in the United States at any rate, and around the world with regard to coronavirus. I, I myself uh, noticed uh, the phenomenon uh, as early as late January when one of my Korean-American friends uh, came to class and saying that, oh, the other day he was walking on the street and someone shouted to him, like, virus go back to China, something like that. And he was 
kind of amused. He said, I wasn't even Chinese. I'm a Korean American. But in early February, the number of these kinds of incidents surged quickly. And uh, many of my friends have been uh, either verbally or physically abused, uh, including being spitted upon in the streets. And just two days ago, another friend self-isolating in New York was caught a chink right out of her apartment. But then I read a lot of uh, similar incidents in newspapers uh, on news websites, which made me realize that how fast the situation has changed. I, I, I was back in China by then, and then I traveled to uh, Germany early February. So my first uh, react was that I tried to avoid and try to think along the line of racism as much as possible. It's not because that it is not relevant or inaccurate. It's just because that the kind of race or the construction of racism has extremely different uh, complex history of ideas in different countries. At that moment, I was trying to figure out what exactly was going on, why it was a certain population has been targeted and uh, how it was so. So for me, I would rather to categorize this kind of feeling to two different kind of xenophobia-like hatred that has happening around the world. First one is that I noticed that at the beginning of uh, the outbreak, Wuhan people has been racialized as the carrier of virus. It's just a work very similar to currently what Chinese has been um, categorized or racialized. So by that time, people have been discussing about who just came back from Wuhan, who has connections with Wuhan families. So there have been a lot of discussions gossiping around who are the unwanted people to be connected with. So I think that's just the rise of this kind of widespread xenophobia now. The second time is that I noticed institutionalized uh, discrimination targeted at uh, particular nationals. And also I've noticed Africans in China has been extremely bad out for the potentiality of carrying this virus. Like Joanne, I think my first interaction was that I was not really particularly surprised. The COVID-19 just amplified what has been deeply rooted in our society, all the social prejudice and uh, race-based uh, discrimination in our society. Thank you. It was only the first question and you've already brought up so many interesting points that I hope that we can explore and further unpack in the rest of the discussion. When I first came to be aware of this trend, I think, Joanna, it was also thanks to you and the document that you shared um, that you just mentioned, created by the university professor um, in the US. And when I first read about those uh, incidents and news stories, a lot of it was around Chinese food food and Chinese people's eating habits being targeted and attacked. So I guess my next question is, we know that food is part of culture and eating is this social cultural act, which is often a significant marker of our racial and cultural identity. So how is food and uh, the culture around eating linked with race and the racialization of diseases? And in the case of anti-Chinese sentiment specifically, how is food and culinary culture used to stigmatize a whole group of people? I think that food is one of the ways in which people identify themselves and the way in which they identify others by their strange eating habits. And that was true with the British in China and in Shanghai, with where they would slaughter beef and the Chinese people not unreasonably objected to the terrible smell in their city and those beefy Englishmen. I say that as a way of indicating that food is a way in which people identify others. It was also true that when there were disputes with British and other Western missionaries in China, in the 19th century, 
all kinds of rumors circulated about them among Chinese people. They were taking children and eating them. They were using eyes for spells and this kind of thing. So it's a very common thing, not only to talk about food, but to talk about eating in a stigmatizing way, I would say. And I will say that a, a friend of mine whom I previously respected wrote to me and he said, can you believe they were selling koala bears for food in that market in Wuhan? And I said, oh, don't be ridiculous. This is just propaganda from America that's anti-Chinese. And he said, no, I got it from the UK newspapers. And I said, well, it's British propaganda. And he said, but there are photographs, you know, so we've been having this ongoing conversation. And he's convinced that it's because Chinese people eat koala bears and we're selling them in this Wuhan market that this whole coronavirus has happened. It's a very common thing that people identify others as other by what they eat. Just to follow up on Joanna's point, I think uh, food and eating, part of the ways in which people imagine, reconstruct the meaning of things they're unfamiliar with, including the ways of eating they're unfamiliar with. And part of those imagination are necessarily built on misunderstanding and fantasizing of exotic things. Now, during the coronavirus uh, epidemic, Western people, including some people in China who do not live in Wuhan, contemplate with uh, this idea that it was only because some Wuhan people ate bad soup that coronavirus started to spread in Wuhan and then later spread in other parts of China, which interestingly has a historical parallel in early 20th century in the United States when around 1900 there was a bubonic plague in San Francisco. The San Francisco County immediately had the lockdown in place upon Chinatown such that Chinese Americans were not allowed to go out of Chinatown whereas white people were still free to go in and out of Chinatown. And uh, there were posters showing that presumably Chinese people all lived in overcrowded rooms and eating rats. And that was why a bubonic plague started to spread in Chinatown, even though there was no scientific evidence showing that uh, Chinatown was the epicenter. But that was the widespread understanding or misunderstanding of Chinese food at the time in the United States. As we can see now, when people in the West start to wonder where coronavirus came from, they immediately build the idea on the, on the imagination that, oh, Chinese people eat fat, and therefore fat transmits coronavirus to Chinese people. So I would say, yes, food is one of the ways in which people fantasize, misunderstand, misconstrued exotic things that attach to the identities of others. Yeah, I will just to add a little bit non-Western aspect to this issue. I think on the one hand, yes, food, it does really help to construct a kind of self-other relations by sometimes othering and exalting others' food habits. At the same time, I think for a certain extent, I find food can also play a very important role by connecting people together. So, for example, a lot of Africans in China, they are very used to the Sichuan food. They were extremely into the spicy Suan Cai Yu, a spicy fish soup that has been widely available in many Chinese restaurants. So I think for a lot of Chinese people, they try to connect with Africans by sharing their food together and sharing the same kind of manner together. So at the same time, I think food does play a very important role bridging people together. Thank you for bringing that different perspective. So as Joanna and Yao, you brought up, it's not 
new to kind of perceive Chinese people as unclean and unsanitary and um, therefore uncivilized in a way. And terms such as uh, yellow peril also show that it's not new to perceive East Asian people, mainly Chinese and Japanese, as a threat to the quote-unquote uh, Western civilization. However, it is only recently that China started to be perceived as a threat in the sense of being a geopolitical superpower with strong military and economic capacities. So in terms of Sinophobia that we see this time, how much of it do you think is old uh, racism? How much of it is new and unique to the situation today? I think you have exactly put your finger on things. This is all about a sudden realization on the part of the United States that China has progressed by leaps and bounds and is not necessarily progressing towards an American model that is taking its own path into the future. And that causes extreme anxiety in a collective way. I grew up during the 1950s and 60s as the British Empire was disintegrating, and I feel like I'm reliving my childhood to some extent. I think it was Yao who said this is it's building on a pre-existing condition, if you like. It's or I can't remember which. All these things exist in society and then are exacerbated. And as people feel terrible fear and anxiety, they displace their anxiety and it becomes a kind of hostility towards the people that they think may be responsible for this loss of control or of power? Yes, so I think there are, as Ajana said, there are differences between old and new racism, especially racism against Chinese people, because of the rise of China. That is, in the past, a hundred years ago, perhaps, the kind of anti-Chinese racism, the kind of anti-Asian racism was revolved around the existing idea of racial hierarchy and world hierarchy, center and peripheral hierarchy. That is, Chinese people and other uh, Asian people, East Asian people, have their proper place in the lower parts of this hierarchy. And uh, the threat imposed by them to the then existing world order is that they emigrate to other parts of the world, populate other parts of the world, but were not unable to integrate, to be assimilated into the existing superior culture. And therefore, the idea of yellow pearl, because they impose a kind of sanitary threat by their presence. But nowadays, this kind of threat is partly replaced as a kind of threat originated from disloyalty. That is, oh, now there's an authoritarian great power that is on the rise and exporting its people to all parts of the world. And those people, we are not sure, like from the standpoint of some Western leaders, we are not sure whether those people would be loyal to us, to the new country they now reside, or whether they are just spies or special agents sent out by this communist regime, and whether or not when time arises, they will become the fifth column within us. So the threat now is more and more political, more and more associated with this existential threat between liberal democracies and authoritarian powers. And that is why we now witness the kind of rationalization of uh, racism in the time of coronavirus. That is, some people insist that, oh, we should call this virus Chinese virus because that helps us to pin down the blame on the communist regime, would to hold them accountable, even though how exactly that will help uh, help us hold them accountable is still in question. But this provides a, another way for them to rationalize because now the nature of the threat is 
more and more political and more and more existential. Another room for rationalization is open up in this new time of um, post-globalization competition of world supremacy and in the time of this revisionist world order. I think this question presumably is very West-centric. It's all about who is going to take over the world as a dominator. But from a different perspective, I think the kind of construction of China and how anti-China feeling has been constructed is really depends on different kind of social and uh, cultural contexts. For example, one of the interesting findings I've came across during my fieldwork in Africa is that Chinese people has been regarded not really as a yellow race, but exactly because of their white appearance. So in Nigeria, people are calling Chinese people Oibu and or the master. And Nigeria has been one of the colonies of British colony for a long time. So I think there is a very subtle association between the Chinese people and the British colonizers. But at the same time, the Nigerian people are expecting different things from China. So it's not about uh, China as a threat, but uh, also for the African countries and African people, there is a choice between who are the people to follow, whether it's Western traditional leaders or there's a Chinese new leaders. So I think we really have to bring down this question to what kind of relations that China has been built uh, in the past with African countries, and now what kind of roles China is playing, not only with regard to the uh, traditional China United States relations, but also with related to China-Africa relations. But at the same time, um, there is a growing dissatisfaction towards Chinese and Chinese states among the African people. So the, the main content is not really considered China as a threat, but China as a people with kind of conspiracy theory that China is carrying different kind of aims to control or to dominate or to take a different, more influential roles in local politics in Africa. So I think uh, we should really contextualize what we are going to discuss about yellow perils, what kind of like specific cultural, social and political contexts we are dealing with. So there are two points that you brought up that I want to um, follow up with um, respectively. What you, you talked about, the relationship between Africa and China, but also Yao, when you mentioned that um, there is this kind of framing of discourse, liberal versus authoritarian, and I think it's also my personal experience when I read some of the articles in some of the Western mainstream media, especially in the early days of the outbreak, there was almost this rhetoric of Western exceptionalism and the outbreak was taken as proof of the failure of the non-liberal state. And so um, China here, of course, is blamed and racialized not only for its culture and food or whatnot, but also its political and ideological system. So to follow up on that, to what degree do you think that kind of mentality and that form of othering contributed to some countries rather delayed response to the outbreak? I think to some extent it did contribute to the slow response at the beginning of some of the Western countries, but I wouldn't exaggerate the degree to which it contributes to that fact. Of course, coronavirus presented a kind of new challenge to public health policies precisely because its early asymptomatic period is so long, but it's still contagious. So people like public health officials who relied on old knowledge, old modes of uh, regulation 
would hardly been able to realize at the outset that, oh, we need to move fast to contain coronavirus, even when it was asymptomatic. But that said, there was uh, some extent to which uh, this kind of honoring, not just honoring of the, the Chinese, but also honoring of other Western countries' experiences contributed to those responses. But of course, the honoring of Chinese experience played a big role at the beginning of this pandemic when in late January and early February, a lot of American news media paints the whole situation wholly on the Chinese government's concealment of information, arguing that were it not for the Chinese government's censuring of Dr. Li Wenliang and other whistleblowers, the whole thing would not have happened. And an implication not said was that, well, this would never happen in the United States. But of course, things turn out differently, partly because uh, the United States is nowadays undergoing a kind of decay of its political norms and institutions, but also partly because during the Chinese government's response to coronavirus in late January and early February, there was a mixture of things they were doing right and things they were doing wrong. Things they were doing right probably include building several like temporary hospitals to treat those who are mildly symptomatic. And things they were doing wrong, of course, are many, but because the media, probably because they are not, they, they are not scholars, they are not responsible for uh, writing things that are complicated, sophisticated, and nuanced. When they report the events that are unfolding, they tend to find quick answers that will satisfy their curiosity of their readers. And therefore, all those causal chains were narrowed down to, or reduced to a kind of oversimplified explanation of those events including the argument that, oh, it was because the government was authoritarian, things went wrong, and therefore there was nothing particularly interesting that we can learn from. And therefore, some of those things the Chinese government might have done right were not taken seriously and early by public health officials in some of those Western countries. I would say that probably contribute to some extent the early failure of uh, response in those countries. I think to a certain extent, there is a kind of a certain discussion about whether to go authoritarian or not uh, in the way of controlling the spread of this uh, virus. At the beginning, I think, especially in the Euro-American countries, they were uh, comparing the kind of success of control, not between the Europeans and not with China, but also with countries like South Korea, because South Korea may have a quite similar history of SARS, but they does not really have very strict control for mobility. So I think I do agree with Yao that the differentiation between different uh, political regimes do play a very small part in the Western operation ordering nowadays. But at the same time, I think a lot of Western countries are actually doing similar things to what China was doing a few months ago. For example, a lot of um, German authorities are advising people to wear masks. And uh, about three months ago, it was really unimaginable. So there is a kind of widespread ignorance precisely because of this prejudice towards China's uh, political regime. Joanna, would you like to say anything? I just want to agree with what's been said completely. I think that in some senses there's been some double standards because China has an authoritarian regime. The Western press, especially in the US, has been highly critical 
and saying how unbelievable that they locked down this enormous city, this province, and so on and so forth, at the same moment as they're praising Italy for having locked down because it's not an authoritarian government. It's different. I agree with you that it's, it's not the main factor, but I think it's a factor in the response in Western countries. Thank you. And the next thing that I wanted to follow up with is what you just said, which is the kind of complicated context of racialization when it comes to China-Africa relationship. And it has come to our attention that while Chinese people have been the target of xenophobia and racism abroad, many African nationals in China, especially the southern city of China, Guangzhou, have been subjected to mistreatment, being evicted or, you know, different policies and measures enforced on them who are singled out from other foreigners residing in Guangzhou. That has caused a lot of concerns. I've seen emails coming in, concerned students and parents. So I wonder if you can each share some of your thoughts and reflections on that and do some kind of contrast and compare between the experience of Chinese people or people of East Asian descent um, with the experience of that of African students and traders and migrants in China. Okay, I think I will go first. Uh, for those of you who have been following what happened in Guangzhou, may know that there is a widespread structuralized institutionalized uh, prejudice and mistreatment targeting specifically at black Africans. So f starting from March, I remember there is a one Nigerian who are diagnosed positive for uh, coronavirus and he beat uh, one of the nurses in one of the local hospitals in Guangzhou. And uh, this news went virus and a lot of people started to criticizing uh, China's weak measure towards foreigners. So the Guangzhou government started to implement a very strict uh, control over black Africans in Guangzhou. And this also complicates with what we have been known for as three legal problems in China. Three legals means illegal entry, illegal stay, and illegal work. So a lot of Africans in Guangzhou have been associated with this problem for a long time. And the local government has been working very hard to track down every single Sanfei, uh, three illegal people in the city. And also because of these double controls, uh, one of uh, public health nature and one of immigration nature, it caused a lot of concerns among the Nigerians and among the African populations in Guangzhou. But what followed that is that Guangzhou government started to implement a strict uh, quarantine rule. And regardless of the, the Africans' past travel history, regardless of the test results. And a lot of people have also been evicted out of their rented apartments at their hotels. So a lot of people have been on the street or under the bridge for a long time. So at the same time, we see a lot of civil society groups and uh, Nigerian unions have been uh, standing out and try to help them organize the logistics and uh, delivering food for them. So I think this incident has been on for quite a few weeks now, and it caused a lot of concerns, not only in the domestic media, but also in the international media. As I said before, I was not really surprised by what happened right now. Since I was in the field in 2013, there is a continuous concern about uh, Africans in Guangzhou, and Africans have been subjected to racial discriminations 
And um, this uh, coronavirus thing just amplified what they have experienced. The kind of impact this incident will bring to Sino-Africa relations is a problem that we are going to see. It will become quite a turning point for Sino-Africa relations for a long time. And it's very hard for us to go back to the solidarity between African and uh, Chinese people, for example, in the 1960s, 1970s, where the Tazara railway was constructed by the Chinese people. By that time, there was a sincere shared feeling of being together, a sense of being in the third world. But this kind of uh, historic legacy has been missed in the new Sino-Africa friendship discourses. The very grassroots-based affinity between the people has been missing. So what I have been observed is a growing sense of hatred, a growing sense of mistrust and dissatisfaction among African people towards the Chinese. And this kind of racial discrimination does not go one way. We see a lot of increasing racial discrimination targeting at Chinese people among the African people as well. Um, yes, I agree with what you uh, was saying and uh, just want to highlight one of the things she already said, that is the draconian policy imposed by the government on African national communities in Guangzhou was largely propelled by a kind of bottom-up uh, grassroots racism that have been uh, rampant in the civil society for many years. And earlier last month, when unfounded allegations circulating online about like coronavirus in African national communities in Guangzhou, Guangzhou government at the beginning tried to dispel the rumor by saying that, oh, everything was under control, everything was fine, don't worry about that. But netizens were unsatisfied. Netizens were saying like, uh, the, the Guangzhou government was standing with African community and that was not okay. They are traitors to harm people, things like that. And after that, the Guangzhou government stepped up its draconian policy. And this kind of uh, bottom-up grassroots racism has its deep roots, both in his history and in the society at large. That is, since late Qing dynasty, when China first met the modernized West, it was awed by all the technologies and political theory and stuff like that. But also that was the time when the West was undergoing a kind of uh, the rise of social Darwinism and so-called scientific racism in which people in the world are grouped into several races with different levels of intelligence and moral con conception and stuff like that. And the Chinese people in it's eager to absorb what the West has, the superior Western culture and technology and stuff like that. They also absorb this kind of uh, racist thinking about the world when they start to contemplate a revisionist world order in which the Chinese will once again become the hegemon of the world, they don't really disrupt the existing scientific racist thinking of the world order, but they just replace the West with the Chinese people at the top of the hierarchy. But still within that hierarchy, other races, the brown, black, and red races were still conceived as at the bottom of this hierarchy. Um, this worldview was temporarily disrupted when the People's Republic of China was founded because the Communist Party, at least during its inception, had a conception of third world solidarity, as you just said. But after 1980s, after reform and opening, 
when the official ideology was disrupted in the civil society because of all the disasters associated with Maoist totalitarianism, this idea of third world solidarity was also thrown out. And therefore, in the post-reform era, we saw a lot of anti-African incidents, first within university campuses, as one of the scholars Chen Yinhong wrote in a 2011 article about campus incidents of anti-African racism in China, because universities at the time was the center of um, anti-official ideologies, liberalism, the reform and opening and stuff. So they were the first to also repudiate this idea of third world solidarity and therefore the rise of uh, racist incidents. But then in the following two or three decades, this kind of uh, Western inherited but revisionist racism was spreading out across society. And now in the internet era, we saw that a lot of netizens have internalized this revisionist world order in which the Han people should be at the top of world order, either alongside the West or replacing the West. But Africans, Muslims, uh, Middle Easterners, Latin Americans should still be at the bottom of this hierarchy and therefore deserve discrimination against them. So I think that is the historical and psychological roots of the current incidents we are witnessing in China. I don't disagree with anything that's been said, and I want to make a couple of comments. First of all, in the 1980s, I lived in Beijing with a group of foreign students, several of whom were African. And they definitely were experiencing racism at that time. So it absolutely, I can say from on the ground that I saw that happening exactly as you were describing it just now. And I think that two things. One is I think we have to be careful talking about Chinese people, the African people, the American people, because of course, as we all know, there are as many opinions as there are people. Although I think we can all see trends. The other thing I want to say is that when Chinese students started coming back to China and some foreigners came back to China as well, and it appeared that there was going to be a second wave of infection now of the coronavirus, only about 10% of the people returning who were infected were foreigners. But the ban against foreigners coming back to China left an impression that percentage was much higher than that. And I believe that that contributed to a general hostility towards foreigners, which also was particularly acute in the case of the Guangzhou Africans and Africans elsewhere. Right. Thank you. Yeah, I was thinking of that too, how we was hearing a lot of, you know, the fear of imported cases, which left the impression that it was foreigners who might be causing the second wave. While, as you were saying, Joanna, a lot of them are Chinese nationals coming from abroad. And I think there are actually a couple of points that I'd like to follow up with. One is, Joanna, when we briefly talked about this, you said that you also heard that people of other races and ethnicities also experienced this xenophobic uh, sentiment. So, of course, it's, there is this extra layer of anti-Black racism, but can you share a little bit of what you heard in terms of xenophobia, not only targeting African nationals, but also just any other kinds of foreigners? Because I think I saw this video shared by Wang Jing, which was really shocking, which is called Yang Laji 
right? Basically kind of using the metaphor, saying that foreigners are garbage or trash and because of our trash recycling system, basically like putting them in different trash bins based on their behavior. So Joanna, can you share a little bit of what you heard? I've heard about that. I haven't seen it. And I've heard a number of people here that they've heard anti-foreign things said as they've walked by and so on and so forth. I think what you're referring to that I was speaking about was that there's been a marked rise in anti-Semitism in the last few months in relation to the coronavirus. Jews have always been associated with epidemics since they were blamed for and massacred after the Black Death in the 14th century. And there's always an idea that they're going to be profiting from the illness, they're poisoning wells, they're carrying illness, they're diseased in some way. And I think that in this respect, in many ways, Chinese and Jewish people share in common that on the one hand, they're reviled by white supremacists as being bad in some way, filthy. And at the same time, they're regarded by some other ethnicities who are worse treated as kind of elite. So it's a kind of lose-lose situation. I had not heard about this until quite recently, but there's been a surge, certainly in the United States and in Europe, and I don't know about elsewhere, and I don't think this is true in China at all, in anti-Semitic incidents. And again, this is something which everybody has said. These are conditions that exist, conditions of hostility that exist in a more or less suppressed state. And unfortunately, in recent months, they've been less and less suppressed but the coronavirus has somehow brought it all to the fore and made it worse and worse. Thank you. So connecting uh, what you've just said to what um, Yao and Yu said earlier, which is on this racial hierarchy. And of course, I'm also not surprised to see those racist and xenophobia comments, but still, I was reading your article on Douban Yu, and um, I saw the comments below your article and it just blows my mind how anti-black racist, how blatantly racist they are. And it seems to me almost a hopeless situation because on the one hand, of course, Yao, as you were mentioning, there is this bottom up uh, grassroots racism that seems many people who are doing it are completely unaware of it. And uh, they're being able to do that while still claiming this China-African friendship. And on the institutional and government level, we've been hearing how China is a country with no history of institutional racism. We treat everyone the same equal way. And to me, it's just, I really feel that I don't know how much hope that we can have for this kind of solidarity. Although I am glad to see many, many different kinds of activism and counter efforts around the world against racism and xenophobia, whether targeting Asian American or Chinese people or African nationals around the world. At the same time, I don't know to what degree we should be hopeful or optimistic to what degree those efforts can help reduce prejudice and racism if, as we were discussing, those were long existing conditions that have existed. I think I'll just go back quickly to what uh, Yao just said about the roots of current uh, racism and what he just uh, mentioned as bottom-up grassroots racism. 
It is very true that despite the fact that we have been talking about social equality for a long time, the mass understanding of what race is and what exactly can be counted as racism is extremely little. So as far as we see that there is no racial education that has been implemented in every single aspect of our society. So it's not really something that is very usual. So for, for my understanding, what we need to do at right now at that very moment is to, to have this very serious and very dental discussion about what China's racism is and how it came to what it is today. Yao just mentioned that it can be traced back to the social Darwinism in the 19th century. We can trace it a bit earlier that in the Asian Chinese society, there is a strong sense of being the center of civilization. So all those black people are conceived just as the Quinlun people, the barbarians. They are living far away. They are just like semi-animal, semi-human people. So this kind of ideology still play a very important role in today's racist discourse. And I've been hearing a lot of comments about how Africans have a very strange smell and how they are kind of like eating different stuff. So I think among our intellectuals, at least, we need to have very serious discussion about that, public discussion or public debate about what racism is in China now. So for returning back to your question, do we hold any hope? I think we do. And uh, this is quite the best time for us to do that because um, this issue has been deeply rooted and embedded in our society for a long time. We haven't had a strength to carefully examine what is going on. So I think it's quite the best time. And we've also recognized some kind of very positive measures, behaviors among a lot of people try to have this counter argument towards the racist discourse online. For example, there's um, one WeChat group, probably you have already know, called Sanryani Solidarity. A lot of university students have been working very hard to help the Africans in Guangzhou, to help them with their translation, to help to offer uh, various uh, services with regard to the Zikama, the house code registration. So I believe that this kind of uh, miscommunication or ignorance can only be reduced by enhanced um, interactions between the people. And we also have to work very hard to educate our netizens for now. So I was really surprised to find all the comments that below my article as well. And uh, you can find that there's a timeline. In the beginning, the, the comments was quite mild. As time get, went on, I think some of comments uh, that has been uploaded in 2019 was extremely negative. And it can also be echoed to what we have said, the kind of like increasing xenophobia targeting at uh, foreigners and especially Africans. But I think I do hope it is the right time for us to act and to think to confront this problem properly and collectively. I agree with you. I think that although it's unfortunate that the situation that has brought these issues to the fore is unfortunate, it, it provides an opportunity to talk about them. I think the real risk is of social media in a negative sense, taking over the conversation, fermenting conspiracy theories and all that, that kind of thing in a negative way. So it's up to people like us to try to control the narrative or to direct the narrative in an educational way. I agree with the kind of uh, sentiment that we should work hard, even though like I myself is a bit pessimistic in the overall assessment of how likely we will succeed, especially in China. Like 
I think there are several factors that can severely constrain the possibility of success in this front. First of all, like in China, the major social media forum is WeChat, which is an app that doesn't allow uh, external links, which doesn't allow cross-reference outside of other WeChat public account articles and which makes it especially hard for cross-examining the credibility of sources and claims and to refute rumors, and which makes it particularly ripe ground for the spread of rumors. So in China, like the ecosystem for misinformation and disinformation is especially bad, and which makes activists who try to educate people, try to foment a better environment, a better relations between Chinese and other groups of people, a mounting task. But there are larger factors at play here, like even larger than the problem imposed by these kind of uh, social media forums such as WeChat. So go back to what Joyce has earlier mentioned about Yang Laji falling trash, right? And it's a phenomenon, I think, that arises in the past decades, which is associated with this kind of thought called Huang Han, Imperial Han. As you already mentioned throughout the history of China, Chinese people oftentimes conceive itself as in the center of the universe. And uh, this Huang Han thought has this claims that in order to make China great, we need to revive the old traditions of China. We need to purify the Chinese blood and we need to reject the foreign elements, right? So it's a closely linked to all kinds of uh, xenophobic thoughts. But even though the Huang Han thought it nowadays has already become a bottom-up grassroots movement at its inception and throughout its course is propelled by a kind of um, ultra-conservative cultural turn of the government. Think about how in recent years, the government has started to encourage the revival of uh, traditional Chinese medicine or traditional Chinese virtue institutions such as Nudeban, female virtue classes and stuff like that. So not only with the rise of China as a superpower, but also with the domestic turn to a kind of ultra-conservative position on cultural and social issues, this kind of Huang Han thought and xenophobic thought have a ripe roots to grow, and those who try to counter them are often censored, sometimes trolled by netizens, but also censored by those who oversee internet posts. I myself have this kind of experience quite frankly, when I try to write something to educate people about why racism is bad and stuff like that, uh, either on WeChat or Douban or, or Weibo, I find my, my post quickly disappeared because it was reported to the authorities and the authority would think that this kind of post would just incite more problems and let's just delete them. So I think there are larger structural problems at play here. It's not just that people are ignorant. It's just not that people are inherently racist or, or whatnot is because they have been conditioned in the society and they have internalized various thoughts that have been explicitly or implicitly encouraged or officialized with a certain kind of authority. So in order to counter this kind of undercurrent cultural trends, we cannot simply focus on the culture side because this task is inherently political. We have to link it to a kind of project of political change. That later task is, of course, more difficult than the first one. Yes, my assessment is pessimistic, but I agree that despite all the pessimism, we have to do whatever we can to make things better, even if only a little bit. That's a kind of optimistic pessimism, if I may say so, which I like. I do want to say that, first of all, 
about the Huang Han view, I know that there is a view, very strongly held view, that China regarded itself as the center of the universe and so on. But I challenge you to come up with any civilization that didn't think of itself that way. It was not as formally described, perhaps, as it was in traditional China. But there's no civilization or society that's going to say that they were not as good as the next one or that somebody else was more important than they were. It's, to me, just a way of criticizing China, in a sense, first of all. And second of all, a part of that is that I've really spent my whole career talking about this, is that traditional China was not xenophobic. The Europeans came along and said, you're not going to do what we want, that's because you hate foreigners. But that wasn't true. It was because the Chinese didn't want to be told what to do by the foreigners. It wasn't because they hated foreigners. And there's a really important difference between that. Um, and when we talk about in this panel, in fact, I meant to say this to you, Joyce, let's not call it xenophobia, but we did. It's not exactly about xenophobia. It's just about others in general. It's not about foreigners in particular. I think it's probably true even within relatively homogeneous appearing societies like, for example, China's. There are sentiments against people from different areas or different groups, different minorities or, or whatever. So I think let's not make too many assumptions. Thank you everyone for putting our discussion on xenophobia in the larger context, um, whether socially or historically or politically speaking. And with that said, I'd like to open it up to our audience for them to ask questions. Hi, thank you guys so much. So my question is about the wet market specifically. So as an American, you know, there's a lot of conversations right now happening in regards to the wet markets. And because they are such a big part of Chinese culture, they're not simply just going to be removed, yet many Westerners are calling for their removal. They don't necessarily understand what they are. They don't understand how that integrates into Chinese society. So how, you know, as global citizens, how do we start to sort of like bridge this cultural and understanding gap with other people who are not Chinese, who are not familiar with the markets so that hopefully we can start decreasing this sort of xenophobic um, dialogue and conversation. Thank you for the question. I think this is a really good question and that relates to what Jonna has brought up at the very beginning of this conversation, that is how food relates to the othering of other ways of life. I think in this wet market situation, first we need to clarify a distinction uh, between wet markets uh, in general and uh, wildlife markets. So what happened in Wuhan was there were uh, wildlife markets disguised as general wet markets, uh, which sold wildlife and which like, presumably was the beginning of the spread of the, all the virus. But wet markets in general, if well regulated, would not have the kind of problem such as the Wuhan seafood market, which was in fact a wildlife market. But what I have seen in the past few months in Western media is oftentimes a confusion between those two things, wet, wet markets on the one hand and wildlife markets on the other hand. There was in like oh, the Chinese uh, were using uh, wet markets, which was a problem. Uh, we should ask the Chinese government to ban wet markets in general. But wet markets, insofar as those what I, I grew up with, oftentimes sold, for example, live chicken, live fish, which are not usual carriers of the kinds of uh, viruses and diseases we now witness. Of course, chickens and other birds might have carried like certain kinds of fruits, but that kinds of problem goes to factory farm chickens as well. So the reason why the West nowadays doesn't have 
wet market was because in the last half a century, industrial factory farming greatly transforms the ways in which the Western societies get processed meat. And because chickens and pigs are now factory farmed are under much more cruel conditions, even though ordinary people don't always realize that, right? So if wet markets are feared as the kind of cause of the spread of an epidemic, then the same problem would presumably goes to factory farming in the West and presumably would be worse in factory farming. But of course, wildlife markets should be heavily regulated and banned because wildlife animals oftentimes carried a variety of unknown viruses which have not been tamed as in the case of domestic animals who have lived with human beings for the past of thousands of years. So I think in the case of wet markets, the first thing to do is to carefully distinguish between the kind of wet markets which could be well regulated and should be regarded as an integral part of East Asian societies on the one hand, and wildlife markets, which was never an integral part of the Eastern Asian society and should be banned or at least heavily regulated on the other hand. Completely agree with what you said. Absolutely. I go to the New Haven farmer's market when I'm at home in the US and they don't sell live animals because Americans don't like to see, to, to associate, I think, live animals with what they're eating. And in China, I go to the wet markets and there are chickens and there are fish and so on. And it shows you that they're fresh. But the wildlife markets are something completely different. And as you said, exactly, people in the outside China simply don't understand that these are two completely different things. So I just want to quickly add one more thing. I completely agreed with what uh, Yao just said. I think to heavily control, manage or regulate the wet market and it's quite different from building up a kind of personal interrelations between animals and people. Especially in anthropology nowadays, we are seeing a growing concern of how to reconstruct a healthy and harmonious relation between humans and non-humans. And for myself, I have a personal experience because my son was brought up in Germany he has never seen a live chicken before here in Germany because everything was well prepared in the supermarkets. So when I brought him back to China, first I want him to go to the village live and to see the real animals on the side. I think that's kind of like a very missing part of social life because of this industrialized farming techniques and that has been well adapted in the Western countries. So I think, yeah, it's totally different things. And we do have to respect what has been going on in the Asian tradition and Asian cuisines and how food can be prepared differently from the Western society. Thank you. Uh, we don't have a lot of time, but I see a couple of hands and a question here. These tools of tracking, testing, separation, distancing, isolation, I think then slip into and inform the ways that we relate to one another and think about how we resolve the problems. And my question is kind of a comment about how the tools that China used at first actually end up mapping onto the same tools that the world uses, how that ends up making racist and xenophobic responses worse. Okay, thank you for a question. I'm gonna actually ask 
the other questions that our participants raised, and maybe our panelists can answer them together uh, for the sake of time. A student said that they're interested in the seventh question on the slide that I just showed, which is what do you think of Chinese government officials claiming that the virus is from the US military on Twitter? And then there is Chiling. I think you, you raised your hand. Um, hi, thank you. So very quickly, a comment. So knowledge gap is a very challenging um, thing to deal with when we want to communicate because not everyone in China or not everyone in the world are as privileged as at this kind of university where we can have this kind of conversation. So what kind of connections, what kind of knowledge uh, connections can we build when we try to communicate with, for example, people from the outside or people from the inside, when we want to educate them on things that we believe and that we think it's beneficial for them to believe in? Maybe I would just connect uh, several of those questions. First of all, like uh, how to connect, interact with people uh, who do not have this, uh, those informational resources. And, and also the question of Chinese spokesperson exploding this kind of conspiracy theory. I think one thing, again, back to something I said earlier, how likely and, uh, we can succeed and the strategies we adopt is partly tied to the informational ecosystem we are operating. I think when communicating with uh, Western audiences, we have an advantage at hand that is if we write a column to Western media and get published, then it reaches a wider audience. Insofar as this column is well-reasoned and stuff like that, it's likely for us to at least influence some of those readers of uh, those news media. Even though, to be sure, nowadays with the rise of internet, many people in the West don't read newspapers at all and they don't read those where recent columns and they listen to radio talk shows and they watch Fox News and so on. So it might be impossible to reach out to them and have a recent conversation with them. But again, operating under this relatively free and unconstrained information ecosystem, it is likely insofar as we make our best effort that we influence as many people as we hope. When reasoning with people in a different kind of ecosystem, a closed, uh, largely censored ecosystem, the likelihood of success will be greatly diminished. And that relates to the reason why the Chinese spokesperson espoused this kind of conspiracy theory which I don't think they did so intentionally. I think because they also live in this kind of closed and censored uh, informational ecosystem, I believe many of them use WeChat. They read conspiracy theory articles on WeChat, which cannot be double-checked. They have internalized those kind of conspiracist theories. They expose them as if they are plausible, as if they are natural explanations. So in this kind of uh, closed and censored information ecosystem with this low likelihood of success, maybe more things need to be done face-to-face -face, or maybe going to local communities, going to grassroots levels and interact with people, not at the abstract level, not like as if I can write a WeChat article persuading, convincing people. We have to go to the society itself and talk to people in face. Yeah, so we have to think about strategy. We have to think about how to spend our time and energy in different informational ecosystems. Uh, I'll okay. quickly add one more uh, small thing. Um, I would rather think that uh, the spokesman's uh, comments on uh, the original source of the virus was part of the China's new virus uh, diplomacy because there is a lot of conspiracies about 
where the, the virus firstly come from a Wuhan Research Institute. So there is this part of this kind of combat about um, between China and states. So I wouldn't read too much into this kind of conspiracy theory or this kind of diplomatic war. So my, I think my concern is rather with the, how we can do to educate people across different kind of cultural and economic and political backgrounds. I think probably the most important thing for us is not to think about to educate, but actually try to understand and try to think in their shoes and try to find the common ground of communication. Thank you. Any last comments from Joanna? I want to agree with what both you and Yas just said, that I think that for every person that you speak to and that you talk to, you try to understand what they're thinking about not only educate them, if I can use that word, but it educates you. And so you have to, you have to network your, your connections and your knowledge and just do things in a very personal way. And I think that's as good a way as any of spreading real information. Well, thank you so much. I'm sure that you get the sense from what we talked today that this will be an ongoing conversation for us to talk about, you know, how this pandemic impacts, whether it's racial relations or more broadly the development of globalization, nationalism and populism and whatnot. Thank you so much, Joanna, Yao and Ling uh, for joining us and thank you everyone and have a good night. Thank you for listening. This is Uncover. Again, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Medium by searching Uncover.2020. We're also on WeChat with the name Uncover Yi Zhongren. We will be back soon with another podcast episode. If you have any questions, feel free to leave a comment or email us at 2020uncover at gmail.com. Again, that's 2020uncover.gmail.com. Until next time.